Let's turn our Bibles to Micah. Micah 4. And in, in order to give honor to God's Word, if you're able, we'll, we'll stand as we uh, heed the Word of the Lord. We'll be reading verses 8 through 6 of Micah chapter 4. And this is a continuation of what is talked about in, concerning the last days. Uh, verse 6 of Micah chapter 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, that you would help us to receive and believe and to be encouraged that your son, Jesus, the holy Messiah, reigns. And help us, we pray, that we would give him the honor and the glory, that he is both Lord of lords and King of kings, ruler of all heaven and earth. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. If you watch YouTube or you watch other shows, sometimes you might have watched some restoration videos. Um, I've seen, now, I'm not patient enough lately and I've got too much to do to want to sit around and watch these things from beginning to end, so sometimes I'll skip around. Watch the beginning, watch the middle, watch the end, just skip, 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 and just see what they did. But I saw this one video of somebody uh, finding a, a pistol, a World, World War II pistol, that was one big solid chunk of rust and was able to take an automatic pistol and break it up and do some grinding and welding and make a functioning gun out of something that was just one big solid chunk of rust. Um, I think we like restoration because restoration is something that we take something that maybe seems to be worthless, seems to be no good, and everyone says, it's never going to work again. But somebody with a lot of skill takes it and restores it and makes it functional again. Maybe not, absolutely not as beautiful as it was when it was first made, but makes it work again, which is something that is um, a, a wonderful, blessed thing. Before we look at this restoration in today's text, let's go back and look at some of what happened before. Uh, look at the beginning of, the, of this prophecy in chapter 1. In chapter 1, at the end of verse 1, it's talking about the vision of Micah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all its inhabitants, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth 
and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down from a steep place. Um, also, later on in this uh, prophecy, God is going to talk about laying bare the foundation of Samaria. God is bringing a judgment not only to the northern kingdom, but the northern and the southern kingdom because of their wickedness and sin. What sort of wickedness and sin? Sexual immorality, uh, rulers um, practicing wicked rule, uh, false prophecy, uh, we had idolatry. All sorts of things are the reasons for why God was going to bring his judgment. He was going to lay it bare to then restore it. And we'll see how Micah spoke of this restoration to the promised land after a a great time of affliction. As we look at today's text, the Lord uh, promises or has promised a great day of restoration is what we'll look at. God's promising a great day of restoration. And we'll see this in two main points. First, the restored lame and outcasts. So first, the restored lame and outcasts. And then secondly, we'll look at dominion from Zion. So let's look at this first main point, the restored lame and outcasts, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. So, um, who are the outcasts and the afflicted in these verses? If you go back to 1, 1 and following, it's those in Samaria and Jerusalem, the northern and the southern kingdom. Why were they outcasts? Or why were they going to be outcasts? Is because they were going to be taken captive um, and be brought in by a foreign nation. Uh, the Jews should have smashed. The Jews should have smashed their idols. But it says in verse 3 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Micah concerning Jerusalem and um, Samaria and Jerusalem, but it was because, in verse 7, later on in chapter 1, read that in verse 7, all of her idols will be smashed, and all of her earrings will be burned with fire, and all of her images I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. If you know anything about what the Jews should have done, if they were serious about the first and second commandments, they would have smashed the idols. They would have smashed the images. They would have burned them with fire. But they refused. Instead, they adored the idols. So what did God do? God brought in a foreign nation that would do the smashing and the burning on for the prerogative of God. And while doing the smashing and the burning, many of the Jews died as well and were taken captive. The outcasts and the afflicted in today's text 
or those mentioned from Samaria and Jerusalem who were still yet to be brought into captivity. God was going to remove them from the promised land and bring them into the captivity of a pagan nation. Now you might ask, well, why would God do this? Why would God treat his covenant people in this way? And I think the answer for us is found in Hebrews. Let's keep our place in Micah and then turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. For it is for dis- discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we might share in his, we might share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This passage is a great commentary on why God disciplines those whom he loved. And those who return back from captivity, many of them never went to worshiping physical man-made idols again. The only problem is that during the days of Jesus... They set up other idols, their place, their position, and they sought not to have their place and position thwarted by someone named Jesus. Therefore, they sought to kill him. So, yes, uh, God had made them um, reject idol worship, but they didn't have other, <laughs> they, they needed other idols, especially them, of their position, um, to be uh, rebuked. Now, I want to give a story of an OPC pastor that I talked with at length um, once. He told me the story of his daughter who married an unbeliever. And she was excommunicated from the church because she and her husband, basically, they just stopped coming to church or whatever. I don't know what the exact story was, but because of her marrying the unbeliever, she was excommunicated. She had a family with him and had children with him and then later on he cheated on her and then they ended up getting a divorce. And in her grief and in her sorrow over losing the one that she left her church for, who left her, she repented of her sin and returned to the church. 
After some time, she told her dad, Dad, I know that God disciplines his children, but why does it have to be so hard? Well, later on, she met a deacon in the OPC and married this wonderful deacon and now has a wonderful family and God has restored to her something beautiful. Now, I tell you what though, she does have a good story to tell people when, they, when she sees a young woman trying to consider marrying an unbeliever. She could tell them a story. God disciplines those whom he loves, as we read in Hebrews 12. Psalm 119.71, it says, It was good for me when I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. In verse 6 of today's text, God promised, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. Uh, God fulfilled this promise in the work of Cyrus king of Persia, that those who were outcasts were brought back into the land. Let's turn to that passage in 2 Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36, starting at verse 22. It says here that now in the first year of King Cyrus, of, I'm sorry, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. Imagine that. People in captivity in a foreign land, and then all of a sudden their pagan king is talking about their God as the God of heaven and saying that he wants to build the temple back again and send the people back to the promised land. Can you imagine if you were a Jew what that would have been like? The, the wonderful joy you would have had to be able to go back and have that restoration. So I, I, I believe in verse 6 when we hear about uh, Micah talking about gathering the outcasts and bringing those who were afflicted, the outcasts, or you could say those who were in captivity, were brought back to the promised land. The temple was rebuilt. And later on, we read in Nehemiah how the walls were rebuilt and the city even established again. Now, one part in this um, prophecy mentions God making the lame a remnant, verse 7. I believe it likely points to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say there was a time, especially in certain regions of Galilee, with all the healing that Jesus was doing, there, were, there was a point where the lame could have been considered a remnant. Now, 
I don't believe that points to the new heavens and new earth. Some might say, well, this is speaking of the new heavens and new earth. But there's no remnant of lame people in a new heavens and new earth. In the new heavens and new earth, there won't be one lame person. We'll all have glorified heavenly bodies like unto the Lord Jesus. But still keep in mind, the fulfillment of any verse or any difficult verse when we have a hard time interpreting it, um, as a quotation from a book on eschatology says here, that eschatology includes both an already accomplished fulfillment and a not yet of still outstanding promise. So the already accomplished fulfillment is the healings of the Lord Jesus. And the future fulfillment is still an outstanding promise, you could say, and we still have to wait and see how God is going to fulfill that. Next, it says in today's text, there will be dominion from Zion. Verse 8. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. God's restoration of the Jews to have their own dominion and self-rule um, after the captivity. Imagine um, them having a degree of self-rule during the days of Nehemiah. They had their own governor who was a Jew. They had their own laws enacted again. Um, they still were a vassal nation, you could say. Um, that could not have been the fulfillment of this verse. In later years, they were under Greek rule. Greek dominion. And then after Greek dominion, they were under Roman dominion. Still, um, all of that could not be the fulfillment of what's mentioned in this text today. Um, let's say um, the dominion of, or the rule of the nation of Israel in today. There's Israel, God's promised, you could say, well, the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people gathered together who still believe in the Old Testament scriptures. They have their own nation even now. But does that quantify as the former dominion in any way comparable to the dominion that David had or the dominion that Solomon had? And I don't think so. Uh, the nation's current status, why God has preserved and built them up again. I believe God has a purpose for it. I don't, we don't know exactly why it is, but God has a purpose for that nation. But again, it cannot be compared to David or Solomon's reign. Um, I don't know if any of you have had this history before, but it's some dispensationalists, some people who don't have a reformed view of, of theology, they look at Jerusalem, and they look at the Jews in the modern nation of Jerusalem with too much hope, too much expectation. If you ask them, they would say, oh, I would love it to see them rebuild that temple in Jerusalem. Why would you want that? Why would you want the temple being rebuilt and them offering blood sacrifices when Jesus Christ is the final, ultimate sacrifice? And the tearing down of the temple is to show that, you know what, I'm not accepting this anymore. God's saying, I'm not accepting your blood sacrifices. I gave you my only son. 
look unto the Messiah as the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, no longer the animal sacrifices. So anyway, I, I just want to mention that I don't think we should side with ex- hoping or expecting the Jews to have a rebuilt third temple is a good thing. But the dominion mentioned in today's text, the restoration of a former dominion, I believe points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. The resurrected, exalted Jesus is reigning even now as the king of the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem, according to Micah 3.8. And the reign of the current king, Jesus, is far beyond what they could have expected. Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. As great as David was and as great as David's rule was, Jesus' rule as the son of David, both David's son and David's Lord, is far greater. The Messiah would come from Zion and that he would rule the entire earth. Matthew 28 In the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But even more so, one last passage to turn to is Revelation 19. If you want to know who the ruler is, not only of the daughter of Jerusalem, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem is, but the ruler of all, you look at Revelation 19. Let's look at verse 11 and following. John saw this vision. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So who is the ruler of the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. But he's far more ruler of all, not just the daughter, not just the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Jesus has a rule so extensive that Jesus Christ will abolish all his and our enemies. I want us to conclude by looking at the larger catechism. 
page 965 in the back of your hymnal. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray for the kingdom of Christ to come, thy kingdom come, I hope you get a better appreciation of it by looking at this uh, answer here. Page 965, question and answer 191. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church is furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins, and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best uh, conduce to these ends. Long answer, but a beautiful, rich answer. Um, You might have heard me talk about, or even pray about, God bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. So that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, God is going to bring a great revival among the Jews. Now you say, well, that, Kevin, that's, that's your interpretation of eschatology. Well, that's the Westminster interpretation of eschatology. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in and the Jews called is what's mentioned here. That's a, a proper, I believe, interpretation of what Scripture teaches. That God is going to use the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy that we will see a revival of the Jews, not just in Jerusalem, but the Jews in America and throughout the world. And let's, uh, let's pray that we would exalt our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. We thank you, O Father, that you have exalted your Son, even our Holy Messiah, Jesus Christ, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that you have made him the only means of salvation, the only means by which sinners such as us may find eternal life. Help us, we pray, to embrace him as Savior and that we would submit to him as Lord and that your rule through Jesus Christ our Lord would come, that we would see the rule of your Son who is both King of kings and Lord of lords, that he would reign and that you would cause the nations to submit and that those who do not, that you would break them with his rod of iron and that you would build them back up and restore them again to embrace and believe in Jesus the Messiah, that we would see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.
And help us, we pray, to long for that day when a new Jerusalem will come and that you would restore this earth back unto its former glory. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's turn to 413. Revive thy work, O Lord. Let's stand and sing 413.